Welcome to the Roos News Podcast. I'm Judy Baroni, co-lead of the Roos News. And I'm Nancy McCammon Hansen. I'm a Roost volunteer from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today we are speaking with Celeste Moore, fraud specialist, and Margaret Locke, fraud specialist, about the AARP Fraud Watch Network. Welcome, Celeste and Margaret. Thank you. Please take some time to introduce yourselves and tell us about how you first joined AARP. Well, I'll start. So again, my name is Celeste Moore and I am retired. I was a aerospace engineer with one of our uh, big defense firms here in the United States and I retired almost three years ago and I got started um, with the Fraud Watch Network, right when I retired, I I really wanted to understand how scams were occurring so I could stay abreast of it. But also there was a great opportunity to help volunteer and take calls from people who have been scammed and help teach them what the next steps are. Also learn a lot about compassion and helping people who, who can be in really difficult situations because of the financial loss. So it, it, it provides me, you know, just a, a great amount of satisfaction in being able to do this. My name is Margaret Locke. I am a semi-retired attorney here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my introduction to the Fraud Watch Network uh, had a personal bend to it. Uh, about six years ago, a family member was victimized uh, in a financial fraud scam, and it was very unexpected, uh, just in how I knew her as an individual. The following day, following that uh, retelling, the following day, I had uh, a meeting at the Colorado Bar Association, and one of the speakers was from the Securities and Exchange Commission, who handled litigation, and it was on the topic of financial fraud. She encouraged all of us to consider uh, reaching out as a volunteer in this area, and I approached her at the break and said, I guess it was based on what had happened to a family member that I was I was interested in helping. And I think about 30 minutes later, I was talking with the office and the following week I started. Excellent. Both different pathways, but still amazing pathways. So to begin, how did the AARP Fraud Watch Network begin? Well, I know here in Colorado, it started with one of our senators who also had a family member who was victimized. I believe it was his grandmother. Um, I think it was 25 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And that became uh, a community outreach program called Elder Watch. And that along uh, with AARP found common ground. And so that's where uh, the Financial Fraud Watch Network was born from. <laughs> And just to add on a little bit more to, to Margaret, uh, part of the Fraud Watch Network has three fundamental legs. One is really about um, getting resources out to our communities, you know, to help 
teach them how to spot scams and avoid them. The second one that Margaret and I both do, the second leg is the Fraud Watch Network. We we do take calls from people who've been scammed and we help them work through those next steps on what to do. And then the third part of the Fraud Watch Network is doing advocacy for laws and regulations, you know, that are focused in on stopping scams and shutting down these fraud attempts. So the Fraud Watch Network really is pretty vast and, you know, has many legs beside just what volunteering Margaret and I do. So with that point of both of you not only taking the calls and Margaret, you had a family member um, that was unfortunately a victim. How do individuals, how would I, um, whether it's myself or uh, a family member or a friend, how do you, how do you report that? Where do you begin? Um, The Fraud Watch Network does have a call center that we advertise the phone numbers out in the AARP magazines or on the website. There's a phone number you can call. It goes to a call center. Um, This year, we're on track to take over 100,000 calls into the call center. Of those 100,000, about a third of those are victims that need to have further assistance. And the call center, they, they take the victim's information and those um, that information then gets forwarded to the dozens of fraud specialists around the U.S. Um, and we are trained in handling these calls. And then we call them back within 24 hours and we try to talk them through what they need to do next. And to add to what uh, Celeste has added, uh, has spoken of, um, the algorithm is such within kind of the internet at large that if you type in to a Google search, fraud, financial fraud, I'm a victim of financial fraud or what have you, AARP comes up. We're one of the first entries that will come up. And an interesting feature of our program in the Financial Fraud Watch area is that we are taking calls not from members per se. We have a commitment to speak with anyone. Um, So, and many times you will get a caller who even the acronym of AARP does not resonate with them. They don't know what it means. They've seen something, they might've heard something on in advertising on TV, but you know, they couldn't define it any more than that. My calls, I'm sure Celeste will say this can say the same, anywhere from the age of 16 to 98. And um, and membership isn't isn't required to speak with us. It really is a community outreach commitment. Um, so they might not be members, they might be future members, which is also something to consider. Sure. And and that was a question um, I did have because obviously, you know, we're all here as AARP members as well as volunteers. But what if, you know, like I said, what if we know of someone or we're a victim? Um, sometimes 
I guess I'm trying to say sometimes people just don't think, well, should I go to the police first? How do, what is the process? So let's say, for example, someone calls you, you take the information and you said you follow up 24 hours later. How do you follow up? Like what sort of information do you tell them they should have or how do you tell them to proceed from that point? Well, um, to in initiate a call uh, would start kind of with a comptroller, kind of a triage, you might say, mm -hmm. that yes, this is fraud, this is financial based. We would ask for your name. You're not required to give it. Mm -hmm. We would ask the state that you're calling from, the zip code in particular, uh, and then just kind of a brief narrative as to what has happened, why you are seeking help or direction, then that gets funneled into our office, offices in Denver and out disseminated to the volunteers at large. That's where it starts. And then uh, each volunteer is given a, a roster of calls during a, a four hour shift or a two hour shift. And uh, so um, it isn't uh, a solicitation of any sort. We are returning a call. Someone has reached out. And so Celeste will place a call. I will place a call and say, you know, good afternoon. This is a volunteer with AARP Financial Fraud Watch. We're returning a call from Judy. And that's where you start. Yeah, and adding on, Judy, you asked a little bit about, you know, when do you go to the police? You know, every, every scam is a little bit different depending if there was money lost or if it was identification, identity theft. You know, in the case where it's money loss, that, that could look very different for all different kinds of scams, but at bottom line, these criminals are after your money. And then, you know, we, we help them first protect themselves from any further loss, but then we also walk them through reporting. You know, sometimes we recommend they go to the police, sometimes we recommend they go to the Federal Trade Commission or to the FBI. Um, depending on what that specific scam is. And then on the second type of typical scams, the identity theft, we walk them through the steps, you know, if their social security number was compromised, um, what to do next, you know, how to go report this, and then how do they go about seeing if there was any, any, um, activity on their credit reports, how to freeze their credit reports, and those kinds of steps. So it, again, it, it all kind of depends on what the specific scam was, but we, we do walk them through the next steps. So, so say I call you and we go through this process and you do the follow-up. Do you, do you continue to support the victim through the end or is there a point where they just have to continue on their own? Yeah, typically we, we give them the steps. We make sure they're comfortable with it, whether it's going online or calling certain people. Um, we 
don't follow up after that. Um, if they do have further questions, it is logged in on a, a case number for them. So if they need some follow-up, they're encouraged to call us back and then the call center can pull up the notes from the prior call mm -hmm. and then a, a, a separate fraud specialist then can follow back up with them. Right, we can access them by their phone number. And um, every call is ended with um, uh, an offer to call us back if you have any further questions, if there's any problem. Um, you know, with financial fraud, oftentimes kind of, you know, the old adage, time is of the essence. So if you call us, we have to kind of quickly determine the immediacy of what's happening. You know, do we need to kind of make this call short, sweet, and to the point so you can get to your bank, so you can get to your credit card, so you can start the process of notification to kind of shore up and protect your financial assets? Um, you know, uh, sometimes financial fraud is happening over wire transfers. Well, a domestic transfer, you've got maybe 24 hours. With an international transfer, you have 72 hours to claw that money back. Sometimes banks are helpful, sometimes not as much. But uh, I think the calls usually have to start with how urgent is what's happening. And I have had uh, situations, I know Celeste has too, where you say, okay, we're gonna hang up right now and you're gonna call X, Y, and Z and tell them what's happened. We're gonna hang up and you're gonna drive, if you're, it's possible, drive to your branch bank. Sit down, not with a teller, with a banker. You've got to, you know, put your finger in the, to stop the, the drain of finances going out. So um, a lot of times a call starts there and then we kind of flesh it out as to what, you know, financial fraud is, is intertwined with um, an emotional component that's always there. And sometimes that has to be addressed. I mean, we're, we kind of wear a lot of hats, don't we, Celeste? <laughs> we wear a lot of hats, you know? depending on who we're talking to. And sometimes, sometimes Judy, you're not even talking necessarily to the victim. You might be talking to um, an adult child of the victim. You might be talking to the best friends, uh, uh, the best friend of the victim, you know, um, all sorts of people reach out to us. It's really a dynamic process. Every time, every day you work, every day you work. So, um, and, and that was another question I had. Um, I'm assuming this, but I'm assuming if someone's a victim, uh, especially of financial loss, they might be embarrassed to call. So, it, would it be okay if I, as a family member or friend, initiated the call on their behalf? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've had, you know, and actually, Judy, on many, many occasions, I've had conference calls mm -hmm. between family members or friends 
and um, I have been asked uh, to make a call to the victim. You know, I had one adult child ask if I would call her mother. And I said, yes, and she go, or a son, it was a son. If I would call his mother, but don't tell him, don't tell her that I asked you to do it. And I said, no, I, I you know, we're not going to call and lie to somebody. I'm going to tell the truth and it, and it will be okay. Um, but yeah, every, gosh, every walk of life, sometimes it seems like uh, we find. And, and to add on to Margaret, I, I've also had those situations, but friends and family absolutely can call us. A, a lot of time the victim themselves, especially if they're in a romance scam, they're, they're in love. And it's really hard for the victim to see what's going on. It's much easier for family members or friends to be able to identify that something shady is going on here. So we do get calls and we can help walk them through kind of what's happening. Here's the type of scam that's happening. We can give them the resources um, to help talk to their family or friend, the victim, on how to how to we, we give them the resources on how to approach them, show them what the scam is. Even if the victim still isn't open, we then recommend other resources like, you know, you could try to bring in a policeman or a clergyman or somebody that might come in with um, a voice of respect to help talk to the victim. So absolutely, we will help anybody who needs it, not, even, you know, not even if they're the victim, but somebody who's just concerned. Yes. And, and also something I wanted to mention, um, Judy, you said something that, you know, oftentimes the victim is embarrassed. What I have found is that more often a victim is afraid. A victim is genuinely afraid. Uh, in the situation that, like Celeste mentioned, a romance scam or something. You know, when, when a victim starts to kind of, the fog starts to clear and you start thinking that, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I have sent a lot of money. I don't want to do this anymore. At that point, almost to the nose, a scammer knows that the fish is pulling back on the line. And so what happens in that situation is they yank and they pull to set the hook deeper because they know they're about to lose it. And they do it with threats. They do it with profanity. Um, they do it with int intimidation. And the important thing to remember is like in the case of a romance scam, at that point, when the victim is so far into the scam, the scammer knows a lot. Like if you, Judy, were involved in a romance scam, one of the things the scammer will do is pump you for information about yourself and your family and your children and your parents and your work history and your health. And so the threats that start to come aren't simply directed at you. 
but it might be against a loved one. And so what I have found in so many of these calls is just to reassure personal safety oftentimes because they're afraid. They are genuinely afraid, not for their own safety, but because they've put a loved one at risk. You know, well, you know, didn't you say your grandson, you know, went to Creighton Prep High School? You know, what's it about? You know, it's just that implied threat of I know who you are. And that is such an element that is at the root of a lot of financial fraud and a lot of victimization. So when I say we wear a lot of hats, you know, we we don't just simply go, okay, you need to report it here and here and here, and then do X and Y and Z. It's kind of like you have to pick apart the emotional dynamic that's at play as well so that they do feel um, strong enough. I had one woman, I had to have her practice with me, practice with me saying, if he calls again or you pick up the phone by mistake, you hear, I want you to say two words, it's over and hang up. And I want you to hear yourself say it. And we practiced it together. You know, she was afraid. This man knew everything about her. And he was probably, you know, he's probably on the other side of the world. And the threats are all implied. But I remember that day and practicing with her. It's over. Hang up. And now hear yourself say it. Now believe it. Because then, I mean, we, we can't go through the motions in this particular area of volunteer work. Um, in finance, You just can't go through the motions. It, you won't be good at it. I will tell you that as a volunteer. I'm good at it. Celeste is great at it. All of our coworkers are great at it. Unless you can summon up that empathetic, you know, commitment to serve, you won't be good at it. I'm tooting your uh -huh. horn, Celeste. You're good. Said Margaret. <laughs> um, anyway. Wow, that's really, I mean, honestly, that's really powerful. Um, you know, I think many people, including myself, think of the practical side, you know, side of it. Sure, sure. And you're telling me now this emotional side that um it's in every it, call. Yeah. Just don't always think about it. Mm -hmm. Well that's that's very great and powerful information. And I'm going to hand this discussion now over to Nancy. So whenever you're ready, Nancy. Okay. Um I want to share with you an experience I had this morning, which was uh, a little unnerving. I was on Facebook. And I clicked on a, a post that had come through from a friend about what's your Christmas name or something like that. And all these boxes popped up on my screen and said, basically, oh, my God, you, your computer's been infected and you need to call Microsoft right away, blah, 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 which I did not do. Um, because my first thought was, well, how do I know Microsoft is going to answer if, if this is giving me a phone number? So I just got out of Safari, 
went and did something else, came back, no big deal. But I, I have heard that most fraud occurs on uh, online. Is that true? Yes, I I think so. Yes, based on my experience. Celeste. Yeah. Um. I pulled up from from the Federal Trade Commission, which is like the keeper of all the frauds fraud data in the U.S. For 2022, they said the most fraud reported is coming from texts. So texts that come on your cell phone and you click that, you know, that button, that link, or somebody asks, hey, hey, Nancy, is that you? And you respond back, yes, what's up? Um, so texts are number one, uh, phone is number two, then emails, websites, and then social media. So the, those are the top five uh, sources of, you know, beginning fraud activity. So snail mail isn't as big a deal as something. No, that's not true. true. That's not true. You can uh, get it I through snail say, mail. I would, I would say, you know, the box that you're looking at on your desk is the root of everything. If it has a screen, it's culpable. Okay. If it has a screen. It doesn't care what format it's coming in. Um, Nancy, you brought up, you know, something with uh, Facebook. Oh, if I had a nickel for every time Facebook. Um, but what it does bring up is that pop-up. Uh, if you interview scam artists, they'll say to set a hook, they will go through to get to you in one of three ways. For a romance scam, it's that person who is lonely, who is depressed, who is uh, suffering grief from a loss. Um, I always say, uh, and, and sometimes what adult children don't understand is that the desire to be desired never leaves us. It's human. So that's one. The second one is the windfall. You know, the publisher's clearinghouse. Oh my gosh, you've won $3 million in a Mercedes, yada, yada, yada. And the fourth, the third one is what happened to you, Nancy, the pop-up and that's the chicken little. The sky is falling. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Act now and do at our direction, act. In a situation like you've described, what we advise people um, at the Fraud Watch Network is uh, when you get a pop-up like that, I say to people, don't touch anything. Don't touch a key except the power cord. Unplug it out of the wall, turn it off, whatever. And then go and sit for a minute, have a cup of coffee, have a beer, I don't care. And then log back on and you'll be fine. But that's that's one of the three components that you were hit with is to try and, the sky's falling, Nancy. Oh my God, the sky's falling. Call us. Well, the is, Microsoft doesn't even have a phone number. It wasn't <laughs> the first time that that's happened, but I hadn't had much coffee at that point. So it oh. it, it hit me a little bit. You did, you did great. <laughs> so along with that, um, now that I'm a senior citizen, at least body-wise, not in my mind, but do senior citizens get um, are they um, are they fraud victims more than say twenty year olds or thirty year olds or is, is there an age bracket that 
really gets uh, targeted for fraud or is it across the board? Uh, I'll try that one, Margaret. Um, fraud is an equal opportunity type of uh, thing. You know, the, the data that we've seen from the FTC shows almost every age group is targeted relatively equally. However, our seniors, people that are 70 and over, lose the most money. An average scam um, for 70s and older is a median loss is over $1,000 per scam. So our seniors are targeted. I mean, there's there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one is some of them tend to have more disposable income, so they're easier okay. target. Um, they're also, they, they grew up in an era where they learned a person's word is everything. So when somebody calls you and says, I'm going to do something for you if you give me this money, they trust them. There's a, a trust component that our seniors have that it, it was a wonderful, a wonderful part of their life decades ago, but now you have to trust but verify. So you've got a mindset with our seniors that they want to trust what you're telling them. So that's one reason I, I believe they're more vulnerable. Another reason is they're, they tend to be a little bit on the average, a little less tech savvy than the younger folks, you know, who, who live with their phones, you know, 24 seven. So the technology associated with um, what these scammers can do can sometimes be elusive to some, some of our seniors. Um, and, and I think, you know, also keeping on top of the latest scams, like what do you, when they ask for payment and gift cards, um, first of all, no legitimate company is going to ask you to pay in gift cards, but our seniors, they, they don't really understand the gift card process. Cryptocurrency is another a vehicle for transferring money in these scams. And again, our seniors, and I, I personally am not smart on cryptocurrency. So our, our seniors tend to lose more money in these type of scams. I, I would, uh, I agree with Celeste on that. And, you know, it also kind of goes back to, you know, why do you, who was it that they asked, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. The, the <laughs> truth of the matter is, you know, the baby boomers have more, oftentimes more disposable income. You know, they've got uh, a social security check coming in every month. They don't have a mortgage to pay any anymore. Uh, they don't have a car payment to pay anymore. Um, oftentimes I have spoken with seniors and there's a lot of money sitting in bank accounts and it's just sitting there. And that's, that's just a cent that a, a scammer, a coyote just can't pass up. So, but I also read once that one of the average, the average uh, victim is a 62 year old college educated white male is oftentimes a victim. Why? Because he thinks he knows better. I've seen it all. I mean, I've, I was helping one man once and he was a financial planner. And I thought, what? Yeah. Yeah. Teachers, nurses, 
every walk of life, every walk of life. Interesting, interesting. Um, along some of those same lines, um, what do you think about having your parent ask you to be a code or a signature on their checking account? I know when my mother went into a nursing home, I have a sister who's an accountant and she also was able to sign on my mother's checking account. And my mother wanted all three of her daughters on her checking account. I didn't really want to do that. I wasn't comfortable with it, but I said, okay, I will. Um, since I don't live in the same community she lives in, but is that a good idea to have one of your children able to sign on your checking account if you're elderly? Um, okay. The lawyer will answer. No, it's for a number of reasons. In the first place, a lot, I think there is a misconception in the general public about someone who is allowed to sign, you know, the rabbit ears up here, allowed to sign on the account. You are not allowed to sign. You are a joint owner, a joint owner. That's a very important distinction to make. Uh, and I, I defy you really to find a bank where you walk in and say, well, I want to I want to be able to sign checks too. And they will, in fact, give you or the, the account holder a form that you will both sign that will make you joint owners. And that's fine in a, a relationship that is above board based on trust. It's also at risk for owner number two cleaning out an account. I think what is more effective is um, a general power of attorney. There you have fiduciary responsibilities imposed upon you by the state. Uh, it is a legal form. It is signed by a notary. You present it to the bank. It is a made copy of record and you do not own the account, but you have the ability to participate in it and monitor it as well as you know any other financial issue. Too many times we, uh, I think volunteers are talking with family members who are watching maybe uh, a parent drain an account in a romance scam and they in effect can do nothing, nothing, legally nothing to stop that parent absent, you know, filing for a conservatorship, which is drawn out and expensive. So no, I wouldn't, I, I don't have that on my account. My second daughter has the power of attorney and the bank knows it. And, but when I went in to do that, they tried to make her a joint owner. So Anyway, I also counsel that, you know, if you are going into a bank and making any decision within a bank environment, you do not walk out of the bank without a photocopy of what you did. In other words, Nancy, if you went in to make a change on your account in any fashion, any fashion, at the very end, you say, I like a copy of that. Well, we've got it right here. Nope. You better hit print on something because I'm not leaving without a photocopy of that. See, I'm not tech. I like paper. <laughs> so well, along along those lines, um, how do you feel about paying your bills online 
I let me answer. First of all, I personally love online. Um, but being an engineer, I love the technology. I I find it very effective for me. However, um, that being said, would I recommend that they that certain people like my my mother or father? I probably wouldn't recommend that they do a lot of their stuff online. It's just because you got to understand the risks associated with it. You know, you've got to protect your username, your password for paying all your stuff online or banking online. Um, and you have to be able to understand you have to have multiple factor author, um, authentication on there. And, and that requires a little bit of work, understanding how that works. Um, and then you've got your pin coming in, you know, when you try to log in to some of the online accounts, you, you've got to know what the risks are and you never give that pin to anybody. Um, so, so there's risks, Nancy, and I, I think it, it depends on the level of comfort, the level of knowledge that any given person has, whether they should stay going into the bank and going in the utilities and paying it that way or if they're ready to go online okay. i would add i would add two things um to that um with respect to like the nuts and bolts the the phone the utilities uh the cable what have you um i am fine with that i think it's a a convenience what i advise people in my capacity as a volunteer is if let's say you pay your Comcast cable bill through it and then you get a text or an email saying there's a problem with your account you need to contact us I always say delete it then go into your files and find a piece of paper that came from Comcast and turn it over and find the customer service number. If it's your credit card, if it's a Visa card, pull it out of your billfold, turn it over, use that phone number. Use that phone number. Never, like in your situation with the pop-up, Nancy, the red, the red flag was they wanted to direct you to call this number. The scammer. That's what all of it is based on in large part. And so I always counsel people, you know, if it is something in that respect, as far as, you know, a day-to-day -day bill or what have you, um, find find a previous bill, keep it up on record or at handy in a desk drawer, use that number. Secondly, um, one of the things that uh, presents itself in our work at Fraud Watch is um, oftentimes a victim will give remote access to their computer, to their electronic device. Now, in that situation, you have allowed essentially the burglar into the house. And as many of us do, Password, usernames are saved. Passwords are saved. So I've had the situation where the victim, and he was 47, gave remote access, and he actually watched the scammer click in to his bank account. You know, he found the bank app, 
clicked in. Well, the user and password were saved. The money was transferred like that. While the victim watched it. So that's another aspect of, gosh, technology's great. We are our own worst enemies sometimes for convenience. Um, if it is an older person, like my mother, my mother had her, um, you know, her little pension account on her desktop and I, on her laptop. I said, mom, what is that there? Oh, well, that's da 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 with Vanguard or whatever. I said, take it off. I said, uninstall it. And we did because I just, it wasn't necessary. I said, you get a quarterly thing in the mail, don't you? And she went, yeah. And I said, and you have the business card of your agent that if you need to call him, yeah. I said, well, then you don't need it on your computer because she had in fact saved the user and password. You know, it was too much of a risk. So I talk too much, sorry. No, you're fine. This is very interesting. Um, because this week we were, um, I can't remember what Tuesday was, but it was a, a day when you were supposed to donate to different organizations. And so many places now want you to donate online. And then there's PayPal where you can donate different things online. And I had a situation with PayPal a few years ago where PayPal double dipped on a on a donation. And thankfully it was somebody I really liked. So it wasn't that big a deal, but I haven't used PayPal since and I won't. Um, what should you be careful of when it comes to, to donating online? Because usually you have to give a, a, a credit card number when you do that. Well, um, I tend to default toward um, kind of someone, uh, a charitable organization that kind of has its bona fides. You know, the Salvation Army or Big Brother, Big Sister or the ASPCA, um, where you can find even a local chapter or a local number. You know, sometimes you'll, I, we've had cases of fraud based on kind of international uh, charity requests. I'm, I'm like you, I'm a little suspicious of it. And I have oftentimes encouraged callers to reach out to a local organization um, of their choosing, you know, something that might have a local office. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a slippery slope and PayPal. Ugh, I know people love it. It's tied right into your bank account, boy. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's prudent you know, if you could just have a small account set aside, kind of that you would use as, you know, PRN as needed, um, specifically for PayPal or specifically for Zelle. But it wasn't something that, I mean, it's, it's right into your bank account. It makes me a little nervous. And 
Celeste is a tech wizard and I'm not, so she might feel completely different about this. Well, along those lines too, what about GoFundMe campaigns? Buyer beware. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you know the person, I mean, if, if you personally know them, then, and you know what the situation is, and you want to make a donation, I've done GoFundMe a couple times, but just ones that kind of come out of the blue and hit you on social media that they may sound wonderful. You know, a lot of these, these scam organizations, they use international crises or, you know, things, natural disasters going on or, or the holiday because we're in a more giving mode. They play on our emotions. Um, so you really have to trust but verify yeah. make sure you know who you're giving your money to and, and i still have a checkbook and i like the old-fashioned send a check in the mail i to still have a checkbook too, me too. Yeah. <laughs> i have a checkbook yeah. too and uh it i also uh wanted to add with respect to that um like one of the common scams we get is the government grant scam and most of the time it unfolds as something that comes through your Facebook Messenger. Hi, Nancy, this is, we went to high school together, or this is so-and-so, or this is, we work together, and blah, 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 and I just got a $9,000 government grant, and you can too, it's easy, just click on this and fill the application out, blah, blah, it's easy. Now, is it your friend? No, of course not. It's someone who has hacked into their identity within Facebook. Um, and part, if you were to go ahead and, you know, kind of step through that door of scam, part of that application means providing, say, your driver's license. And so, and you do that. And people say, well, you know, I, I gave them my driver's license. And I say, yep. And I'll tell you what they're going to do with it. They're going to set up the next victim. And they're going going to go into Nancy's contact list, your contact list, Nancy, and they're going to find someone. And they're gonna say, hey, this is Nancy. Remember we used to work together when you lived in Denver and I just got this government grant and you can too. And, and the person from your past or from your, your uh, contact list responds back and says, Nancy, is this you? And you say, of course it is, it's me. How can I be sure? And they go, here's your drive, here's my driver's license. It's right here. It's me. Scary. That's how Scary. it works. So do you ladies have anything else you'd like to add before we wind this up? You know, for for the, the folks listening in on this podcast, you know, you're mostly, you know, ARP volunteers in our state offices. You know, Margaret and I are in the back end. You know, we we take the calls after the scam has happened. Um, everything and anything we can do to continue education to our our local communities, our regional communities, is the most important thing that all of us can be doing. Um, just continuing getting the word out. AARP is doing a good job, you know, putting it in the local magazines. You know, when we get our magazines about the frauds and pushing text messages out, but we just have to always be continuing to 
to talk to people. You know, the AARP has a perfect scam podcast, which is actually how I started getting into this. I was listening to podcasts and I love them every week. They come out with kind of the latest scam and it tells you how it gets set up and then how it happens just so I could stay on top of it. But get the word out to everybody, you know, listen to the perfect scam. Go to the website. AARP has a great website on what the latest scams are just so people can be ready. The call will come. The email will come. The text will come. It's going to catch you off guard. And the more you're prepared for it, you're going to be able to say, wait a minute, I've heard about this. I'm not going to do this. So it's, it's education, education to our entire community. So Margaret and I are worked out of a volunteer job, so we don't have any more calls coming in on the other side. Good luck with that. (laughs) Um, I, when I talk with people, oftentimes victims are so frustrated uh, because there really is no, um, there's no justice in it. There's no retribution. I want to catch them. Who's them? And where are they? It's technology is on their side. But I often, often, every time I work, use the analogy of a of a boat, a lifeboat. I mean, there's a reason why when you get on a ship, the first thing they do is they teach you about getting off of it safely. And when I take a call, when we take calls, our job is to get you, the victim, into a lifeboat because right now you're in the water and the only thing in the water are sharks. If you can get a victim into the lifeboat, nobody jumps out of a lifeboat. They're happy to be there. And when I say get them to the lifeboat, that means A, they understand the scam. B, they understand they are the victim of it. And C, they have the ability to move past it. And then they have a fourth, then my fourth obligation is to get them to understand that as a person in a lifeboat, I happen to think you have a moral obligation to reach into the water and pull someone else in so they aren't caught. And I've had a luck with that in approaching people. Uh, I say, talk about it. Talk about it within your social circles, within your family circle, within your religious circle, within your work environment. Now, you don't have to tell them how much money you lost. That's none of their business. And if they insist upon knowing, you can just respond and say, well, it was enough money that I would have rather kept it in my own pocket. They're not entitled to that personal information, in my opinion. Um, You do need to help them by saying, I don't want you to be the next victim like I was. I wish our job would be obsolete. You know, I wish it was just senior citizens. And senior citizens are vulnerable because they're not used to having screens. Our young people are vulnerable because that's all they know. And the the crisis that I see coming within this area of financial fraud is within the younger generations because they have never 
they have never had the experience. I mean, okay, I'm, how old am I, Celeste? 40? <laughs> I thought you told me 29. <laughs> I'm totally 29. I am 62. And I, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, thieves have always existed among us. Now they're hidden behind a screen. When we grew up, you had an opportunity to look at someone, face them, evaluate them, how they approached you, their mannerisms, you know, just you had that face-to-face -face ability. Our kids don't know the first thing about it because they never look up. That's what scares me. They never look up. They don't have that interpersonal skill of saying, wait a minute. A lot of the times I'm talking with an older person and I know, I know that if this person had come face to face with this con artist, they would have walked away. I would have said, nah, not buying this, not buying this for a second. Kids don't have that ability anymore because they don't meet face to face. That's going to be a problem. My two cents. Well, thank you. And unless anybody else has anything else to say, I don't want to interrupt anybody. Any other thoughts before we go on? No. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. You both have been great. Well, I we hope I helped somebody. Yeah. And I think our area of AARP, our volunteer area, is a little maybe unknown as to the depth of the skill set that's kind of required. You've got to think on your feet. You've got to think quickly and you have to always have an empathetic ear and tone. I mean, we're also counseled that if you find yourself falling apart in a call, you, in terms of, you know, and you're trying to resist, resist the thought of saying, did you really do that? <laughs> no, how did you do that? You know, you can't approach it that way. You have to always lead with it with empathy. Sometimes that's very difficult. You know, so I think um, our area of AARP it requires a very interesting skill set to be successful at. Well, well thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Celeste and Margaret for your time with us and for, gosh, I, I don't even know how to say all that valuable information. That's the only way. It's It really surprised me, some of the information you provided. So we appreciate that. And to those of you listening and watching, thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to the Ruse News Podcast on YouTube and your favorite audio podcast platform. And on behalf of the News Ruse podcast team, we thank you.
Thank you.